Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. The title of this episode is simply Ambrose. And once we learn a little about him, we'll see that that title, well, it's enough. For Ambrose was one of the most interesting figures in church history, a hinge around which the course of the faith swung. Born in 340, Ambrose was the second son of Ambrosius, the imperial governor of Gaul and part of an ancient Roman family that included the famous Marcus Aurelius. Not long after Aurelius and his disastrous son and heir Commodus, the family became Christians who provided not a few notable martyrs. Ambrose was born at Trier, the imperial capital of Gaul. While still a child, Ambrose's father died, and he was taken to Rome to be raised. His childhood was spent in the company of many members of the Christian clergy, men of sincere faith with a solid grasp on the theological challenges of the church of that day. Things that you're familiar with because, well, we've spent the last several episodes dealing with them. That is, the Christological controversies that swirled first around Arius and then the blood feud between Cyril and Nestorius. Now would probably be a good time for me to throw in some place markers so that we can get a sense of what was going on as Ambrose grew up. Donatus was the bishop at Carthage. The Cappadocian fathers, Basil and the two Gregories, were hammering out the proper verbiage to understand the Trinity. Athanasius has his long run as the chief defender of biblical orthodoxy. When Ambrose was 16, the famous desert father Anthony of Egypt died. The Goths ran rampant over northern Europe, causing great consternation in the Roman Empire. And when Ambrose was 38, the Goths defeated the Romans at the Battle of Adrianople and a loss so thorough that the Emperor Valens was killed. During Ambrose's lifetime, Pope Damasus will rule the church at Rome. Jerome will move to Bethlehem and complete the Latin Vulgate. John Chrysostom will serve as Patriarch at Constantinople. So, clearly, there was a lot of major import going on during Ambrose's lifetime. When he turned 30, Ambrose, based in the capital at Milan, became the governor of all northwestern Italy. He was charged with a responsibility to officiate church disputes. This was at a time when Nicene and Arian believers were at war with each other, a war not fought with literal weapons, but with words. Ambrose was no friend to the Arians, but he was so fair-minded, so well-regarded, that both sides supported him in his role as governor. When the Arian bishop of Milan died, Ambrose attended the meeting to elect his replacement, hoping that his presence would forestall violence. But to his surprise, both sides shouted their wish that he be the replacement. Ambrose didn't want it. He was doing quite well as a political leader. Following the practice of many at that time, he hadn't even been baptized yet. But the people wrote to the Emperor Valentinian, asking for his approval of their selection. Ambrose was placed under arrest until he agreed to serve as Milan's new bishop. Now, if the Arians had hoped to gain favor by supporting Ambrose as bishop, they were destined to be disappointed. Their new bishop helped define what the word orthodox meant. He soon took the Arians to task and refused to surrender a building for them to meet in. He wrote several works against them that went on to prove instrumental in ultimately bringing an end to Arianism. Trained in rhetoric and law, and having studied Greek, Ambrose became known for his knowledge of the Greek scholars, both Christian and pagan. 
In addition to Philo, Origen, and Basil of Caesarea, he quoted the Neoplatonist Plotinus in his sermons. He was widely regarded as an excellent preacher. In many of his messages, Ambrose expounded on the virtues of asceticism. He was so persuasive that noble families sometimes forbade their daughters attending his services, fearing they'd trade in their marriageable status with its potential for a bride price for the life of a nun. One piece of his pastoral advice became a maxim for the clergy. Quote, when you are at Rome, live in the Roman style, and when you are elsewhere, live as they live elsewhere, unquote. Ambrose also introduced congregational singing and was accused of bewitching Milan by introducing Eastern melodies into the hymns that he wrote. Because of his influence, hymn singing became an important part of Western liturgy. While Ambrose was a fierce opponent of heresy, as seen in his stand against Arianism, his opposition to religious issues didn't morph over into how people were treated civilly. Arians and pagans were still citizens who possessed rights as citizens. As human beings, they were, well, still the objects of God's love and desire for salvation. Respect needed to be shown them, even while opposing them theologically. Well, that was a rather rare perspective for that time, inordinately rare, and it earned Ambrose tremendous respect from all quarters. While the people of Ambrose's time credited his writings and worship innovations as the most notable feature of his life and ministry, History attributes two other momentous events to his impact on the church. First was in the realm of church-state relations, and second is his influence on a young pagan who visited his church and became a follower of Jesus. His name was Augustine. Let's consider first Ambrose's impact on church-state relations. His relationship with the emperor Theodosius who finalized a long-running political trend of folding the Roman Empire into a Christian state, was a dramatic shift from the first 200 years of church history that saw an on-and-off persecution. An example of the change from paganism to Christianity occurred in 390, when local officials imprisoned a charioteer of Thessalonica for homosexual behavior. The public rebelled against this action because the charioteer was a major celebrity. He was a sports hero and a crowd favorite. Riots broke out with a loud cry for his release. Not a few of the rioters and innocent bystanders were killed, including the governor. The mob took over the prison, and the prisoner was freed. The emperor was enraged by the melee. He was determined to exact revenge against the people of Thessalonica for such a flagrant disregard for the law and disrespect that he felt at having his hand-picked governor so casually relieved of his life. And so he slyly announced another chariot race. When the crowds showed up and settled into their seats, the gates of the arena were locked and the people inside were massacred. Over the following three hours, 7,000 were put to the sword. Ambrose was stunned. Once he recovered from his shock, he sat down and composed a letter to Theodosius demanding that the emperor repent. As chief ruler, Theodosius wasn't inclined to follow some far-off bishop's counsel. Ambrose was merely a clergyman and way over in Milan. Theodosius was the mighty ruler headquartered in the east at Constantinople. But Theodosius didn't stay in Constantinople. Wouldn't you just know it? Imperial business took him to, guess where? Yep, Milan. 
As a Christian emperor of a now Christian empire, Theodosius went to church and expected Pastor Ambrose to serve him communion. Ambrose refused. His letter, calling for the emperor to repent, had gone unheeded. Who did this guy think that he was, that he could just waltz into the church in Milan and line up for communion as though everything was hunky-dory? The nerve of this guy. Ambrose repeated the condition, unless the emperor repent of his gross abuse of power and do so publicly, no communion would pass his lips. Either Ambrose was gutsy or he had a death wish. An emperor who'd ordered the execution of thousands probably wouldn't think much of offing a lone, obstinate bishop. But Ambrose demonstrated that he would not compromise his calling to save his life, and Theodosius realized that his best course was to do as instructed and repent by setting aside his royal garments, his emblems of state, wearing humble sackcloth, and donning a face streaked with ash as a sign of penance. Ambrose never intended this humiliation of the emperor as a way to elevate himself or other church officials. It was simply something that he believed Theodosius, who claimed to be a Christian, was required to do as a sign of sincere contrition before God. Ambrose would have been appalled at how later bishops used their office and power to administer the sacraments as a way to manipulate civil rulers, and by doing so, use civil power to accomplish church ends or we should say their own ends hidden neath a thin veneer of religion. Though Ambrose could not have foreseen the consequences of this episode with the emperor, it introduced the medieval concept of a Christian emperor as the compliant son of the church serving under the orders of Christ. Over the next millennium, secular and religious rulers vied with each other over who was sovereign in the different spheres of life. Though we might expect Emperor Theodosius to leave Milan with an axe to grind as it related to Ambrose, legend says that he was so impressed with Ambrose's courage and quality of Christian witness that he said, quote, I know no bishop worthy of the name except Ambrose, unquote. When the emperor died, it was in Ambrose's arms. Of Theodosius's death, Ambrose said, quote, I confess I loved him and felt the sorrow of his death in the abyss of my heart, unquote. Two years later, Ambrose himself fell ill. The worries the entire Italian countryside felt were expressed by one writer as, quote, when Ambrose dies, we shall see the ruin of Italy, unquote. On the eve of Easter in 397, Milan's beloved bishop breathed his last. Only one more name is associated with Ambrose than Theodosius's, and that leads us to the second impact of his ministry, the one that historians reckon as the most important, that one name is the student who outshined his teacher, Augustine. But that is the subject of our next episode. As we end, please remember to visit the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page, give us a like, and leave a comment on where you live. A special thanks to those that have been telling others about the podcast. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.